Lord, we celebrate you and thank you and praise you for your great love for us. Your mercy, your goodness, your holiness extends to every corner and every human situation. Give us grace to hear you, to trust you, to love you, and then to show that love to other people like ourselves and even and especially perhaps those who are nothing like us, who need to see you through us first. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So glad that you're here. I have an incredibly important and difficult topic to address with you this morning. The fact that this is the third service of the weekend I don't think is going to make it particularly easier because I've heard three stories between services that speak to the reality and the nearness of something that has been shaking the United States and really the world since the middle of October. Until a few months ago, the name Harvey Weinstein was a name known primarily to Hollywood insiders and to people who were really, really into movies. Harvey was a big deal in Hollywood. In 2015, Newsweek published a little research that said in awards shows, Harvey Weinstein was thanked from the platform of an awards show more often than God himself. In Hollywood, he was that powerful. He was a star maker. If he moved influences, the movie got made. If he made decisions, women in particular got the part. And they could be, become, apparently, at his will alone, they could become famous, fabulously wealthy. And all the work and sacrifices of years could pay off in a moment if only Harvey decided that it would be so. He was one of the first and the most notable by now. You know, if you've been following the headlines at all, over a hundred powerful men, some who've been welcomed into American homes through television for years, have fallen in shame and disgrace, sometimes making sad denials, other times admitting their faults and slinking back off into privacy. The movement, which is called Me Too, really began, began in earnest on October 15th of last year when actress Alyssa Milano, following the idea of a friend, tweeted this, if you've been sexually harassed or assaulted, reply to this tweet with Me Too. And then Miss Milano went to bed. The next morning, 30,000 people had replied, and data analysts say within 24 hours, all of social media had become engulfed, and there were 12 million people talking about this, tweeting, retweeting, telling their stories, sometimes in detail, sometimes simply saying, it was said to me 20 minutes ago in the parking lot, me too. Too many times the church of Jesus who knows that Jesus truly, literally, personally is the answer, ignores the world around it. Too many times we can be accused of answering questions that nobody's asking. Maybe you've heard that criticism. In one part, there's good reason for that. Sometimes Jesus himself and people who are following Jesus have to talk about things that nobody's talking about because all too often our eyes are too low. We're concerned merely about the mundane and the daily. 
And it's very hard for anybody to lift their eyes up to the eternal. And God always speaks about what matters most about eternity. But the criticism that sometimes we ignore to our own detriment and to the harm of others, what is actually happening in our society, sometimes that criticism is fair. We'll try to address that this morning. I would just like to say on the front side, too many of you have already said, me too. You said it for weeks and months in personal conversations and emails you've sent me and conversations you've had with other pastors. Our heart goes out to you. And it's good and truthful, and if it's real, it's good to say me too, but let me on the front side tell you there's more to it than me too. I would like to add, as a strong Christian woman wrote a few weeks ago, yes, me too, but these two precious words, but God. God intervenes. Acknowledging the evil and the harm that others have done to us and is important, and it's a good and first step toward healing. But the best news of all is that God himself has a voice, and God himself wants to act in all of these situations. There's not a single passage in Scripture alone that can tell us everything that we should do as people who are following Jesus in this moment. But I'd like to talk to you about the moment, and I'd like particularly to tell you what we should do in view of all this, because it's a big deal. Time Magazine named as their person of the year, not a single individual, but several women. The cover says, the person of the year are the silence breakers. These, Time Magazine says, are the voices that launched a movement. It happened in a moment when women who were well-known emboldened by the courage of a few, came to believe that they would finally be believed and they raised their voices in a strong chorus that is echoing across the United States. And here we are. Most of the people who have been victimized in the United States are not known to any to the nation. They're only known by a few people. Their stories like yours and mine are quiet, nearly private, almost anonymous, but they matter. And I'd like to tell you this morning what we as followers of Jesus Christ should do to respond to the evil of this kind of abuse. Because a response is required and a response will be given and it will either be silence or passivity or something else. Here's what I believe the scripture would tell us as we look across the whole of the Bible. Here's what God would expect from us as Christians. First of all, this. We will care for victims because God does. Over 1,400 years in 66 books of the Bible, you will see that from the very first pages of scripture all the way to the end, in a new heaven and new earth where every evil thing that has been done is dealt with either in justice from God or the grace and the forgiveness of God. In every one of those instances across all of human history, God cares for victims. He stands on the side of those who have been oppressed. He stands on the side of those who have been broken. He stands by those who have been caught up in the gears of machinery that is too powerful for them to personally withstand and had their lives harmed, sometimes ruined. Jesus knew that. Jesus embodied that. In fact, on one day in his hometown synagogue of Nazareth, Jesus went to the synagogue as was his custom. 
Yes, Jesus went to worship with other people every single week. And he opened up the scripture, he opened up the scroll that was handed to him, and in it he found a prophecy that you can find in your Bible this morning in the prophet Isaiah. It was written 700 years before Jesus himself was born, and Jesus reads the ancient prophecy 700 years before his time, and after reading it, tells the people who have heard him, this is being fulfilled right now. This promise that was made was made about me, and it's happening. I'm fulfilling it right here, right in front of you. This is what Jesus read. For those of you who work in companies that work hard on things like corporate values and talk about their cultural ethos and maybe have a mission or a vision statement, practically everybody does. I was at Sprouts the other day. They've got about nine good words on their wall. I don't know if you've noticed talking about what kind of people they want to be toward each other and toward their customers. Well, if a grocery store can care, certainly God himself knows who he is, and Jesus here sort of lays out his agenda, if you will. This is not only Jesus' vision, this is his mission. This is who he is, and this is what he's going to do. Luke chapter 4, I'm going to put the scripture on the screen so that at certain points we can read together. This is what Jesus read from the prophet Isaiah. Jesus read, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who were oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Look carefully through that passage again and see how many phrases you can find where God speaks on behalf and Jesus says, I am here for those who have suffered. I am here for those who have been oppressed. I am here for those who are captive. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me, Jesus said. In other words, I am not only chosen, I am empowered by God to do certain things. I'm here to proclaim good news to the poor. That same Lord has sent me to proclaim liberty to captives, recovering of sight to the blind, and to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to say that right now, because I'm here, this is the year of the Lord's favor and blessing. I can't find at any point in Scripture where Jesus says to those who were broken that they need to get over it that they need to bury it, that they need to move on. No, Jesus stands besides them. He welcomes them. In fact, he goes running to them. He kneels beside them and dries their tears. And that's the final picture in the Bible. For God himself dries every tear, comforts every hurt, restores everything that sin has taken. Now that's Jesus. What does that meet with our lives? Well, if we are ever going to live up to, if we're ever going to live worthy of the name that we claim for ourselves and the name that was given to the first followers of Jesus, if we're ever going to wear the name Christian, if God stands with the oppressed, if God stands with the hurting, if God drives the tears of those who are broken, so must we. If we stand indifferent and aloof, we actually deny the goodness of the gospel. We tell people who need his help and healing and grace and forgiveness most that it's all really a pipe dream, that there's no real love, there's no real restoration to be found. That's in the gospel of Luke. Look in the book of Proverbs. 
This is a thousand years before Jesus was born. But this is God speaking directly to his people even before the cross of Jesus, telling them what he expects from them. A thousand years earlier in the book of Proverbs. Now before we read, the first sentence is a little hard to understand, and that's purposeful. The way Proverbs work, Proverbs are literally wise sayings, and sometimes the writer deliberately uses clever language to obscure the meaning a little bit and make you, the reader, sit there and think, now what in the world is that supposed to mean? He wants you to stop and to ponder. He doesn't lay it out with crystal clarity sometimes because the act of reflection and pondering what it means and how it applies to your life is exactly the sort of thing that's going to make the light bulb come on and you to measure yourself by the wisdom here you're being given. Here's what I mean. Proverbs 24, verse 10, the first sentence says, if you faint in the day of adversity, your strength is small. What does that mean? If you faint in the day of adversity, your strength is small. Well, it's just a flat statement. What's it about? I think it means this. The whole point of strength is to be able to step forward and answer when there's trouble. Strength that is useless, strength that disappears, strength that results in fainting when there's real trouble, when there's real adversity has no point. It doesn't solve anything. It may as well not exist. Now he gets specific. Here's the responsibility of God's people in all times, and especially those of us who know Jesus and love him. If you faint in the day of adversity, your strength is small. Rescue those who are being taken away to death. Hold back those who are stumbling to the slaughter. In other words, the day of adversity is this. You are living in a time where some people are being victimized and dragged off to death. They're being degraded. They're being mistreated. Their lives are being ruined in your day. There are others who, through woundedness or ignorance or blindness of their own, are those who are not necessarily being dragged away by others, but they're stumbling toward the slaughter. They're headed toward harm, and they don't even know it. The responsibility of God's people has always been in every season of life, from the beauty of a woman's womb to the very end of life when people become all too often on our side of the world almost disposable in their old age, we are to rescue those who are being treated poorly. If you say, behold, we did not know this, in other words, if you plead ignorance, and here comes a series of questions. Does not he, God, does not he who weighs the heart perceive it? Does not he who keeps watch over your soul know it? And will he not repay man according to his work? Three questions. Three rhetorical questions. Can you think back to... Your grammar teacher telling you what a rhetorical question was? For if it was, if you're like me, there was one of those moments in school where you said, this is useless and academic information, I can safely ignore this. Well, rhetorical questions are actually very powerful ways to communicate a point. You don't have to be an English major. You just have to know a mother to understand what a rhetorical question is. 
Mothers are the masters. Fathers too, but mothers in particular are the masters of rhetorical questions. Mothers, my mother at least, would ask things like this, what's wrong with you? <laughs> now it's a question, but it's not actually calling upon my self-awareness to figure out deep inside my little heart and psyche what's going on with me. Obviously, there's something wrong. That's the point of the question. My father favored this one. You want a spanking? <laughs> and the answer at no point ever was yes. <laughs> Been working toward it all day. Dad, I'm glad you finally woke up to the game. Come on over here with that big belt and light me up. Never ever did that occur. The question was actually a statement. It wasn't trying to elicit information from me. It was trying to give information to me. Here are the rhetorical questions of Proverbs. If we could go back to the first slide. Proverbs 24. If you say, in a time of adversity where people are being hauled away and others are stumbling to death, if you say, behold, we did not know this, does not he who weighs the heart perceive it? Won't God know the truth? It goes on to ask, does not he who keeps watch over your soul know it? In other words, you're in relationship with God. He has covenant faithful love toward you. He's the one who watches your soul. Won't he know that you're playing dumb? Won't he know that you're pleading ignorance when you can see in a day of adversity everything going on around you? And will he not repay man according to his work? In other words, won't the judge of all the earth do what is right? He will. That's why if we're going to use the name of Jesus, we must be the first to stand with, stand for, care for, comfort, listen, believe, and support those who have been victimized by sin, and particularly those who have been victimized by the evil of another person. That's the first truth. The second truth begins quite literally here at home in the fellowship of this church. The second thing that must be true about us is this. In response to the evil of abuse, we will treat each other with the love and honor of family. The relationships between those of us who claim God as our Father because Jesus died for us and rose from the grave for our sins to welcome us into the family of God, if we really are God's kids, then we're going to treat each other like it. Out of love and honor for our Father, we're going to treat one another with love and honor of family. And let me quickly say, family as it should be. Because I learned a long time ago, for many of you, for too many of you, God's self-chosen, most loving way of expressing to you who He is when He calls Himself your Heavenly Father, for some of you that doesn't make much sense and isn't much help because of what you suffered at the hands of your own Father. Or because your father, through death, or through abandonment, or through simple daily neglect, simply was not in your life. When we speak of God as our father and church as a family, what we're talking about is family love between a family and its siblings and the parent as it always should have been. In other words, your heavenly father is the father you always dreamed of. Regardless of how great your dad was, your heavenly father is perfect and anything good you've ever seen in an earthly father is only a reflection of the perfect goodness of the heavenly father. 
And the word picture all across the New Testament is that when people come to Christ, they are born into God's family. And if you and I have the same father, what does that make us? Brothers and sisters, family, siblings. And we love each other, we support each other, we stand for one another, we fight for each other, we treat each other with love and the honor of family. Here's how the New Testament explains it, beginning in Ephesians chapter 5. The people who are receiving this letter in Ephesus have been rescued out of an alcohol, sex, and witchcraft-soaked culture. It was legendarily dark and wicked in the city of Ephesus. This is one of the most unlikely pagan dark places for anyone to ever believe Jesus, but these Ephesians have. And Paul loves them dearly and writes them this beautiful letter you're reading in your Bible, you're reading off the screen called Ephesians because it's a letter sent to them. And now he's explaining to them because of the love that God has for them, this is what it looks like to live as family. We'll go through this slowly because this is how we are to treat each other in an epidemic of sexual abuse and harassment. He says, therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. In other words, you're in God's family now. You're learning from him. The time-honored way of kids growing up is they watch what their parent is doing, and they imitate it. As a boy, I had a little toy tool set that I followed my dad along with. Whatever my dad had, I almost always had the toy equivalent of that, and I watched him and I tried to imitate him. That's how I learned to do many of the things that I do, including what I'm doing now, teaching the Bible. I learned that primarily from watching my own father do it. Paul says, now you're in the family of God. Imitate God, your father, as beloved children, and here's how you treat each other and walk in love. Now, why walk? Because a walk takes place one step at a time. Saturday morning I woke up and as sometimes happens my, mount, my little mind was wound too tight and everybody was still asleep. So as soon as the sun started peeking out I went out to walk. Too tired to run, I just walked. Walked about three miles. Discovered little places of Huntington Beach that look like the wilderness. Did you know there are horses in Huntington Beach? <laughs> I knew that but I'd forgotten. I just walked deep enough into the park until I found it. And I just kept walking and I'd stop and listen to a podcast. I'd stop and read my Bible. And about an hour later, I felt peaceful again. How did I ever cover three miles one step at a time? I didn't know. I didn't intend really to go that far. I was surprised by my, what my smartphone was telling me that I'd gone actually quite that far. That's the picture of the walk. You'll see it over and over in the New Testament. The way to walk with God is one decision, one step, one encounter, one conversation at a time. Paul says, you Ephesians are now in God's family. You're his beloved children. Imitate him. See who he is, see what he does, and imitate it, and with each other walk in love. Here's the standard, as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, that's the measure of love. This is the good news I'm telling you about every week. 
And whoever stands up here has a single great message to deliver, that for love, Christ loved you and gave himself up for you. And that was so beautiful and so important and so right and so sufficient, Paul says, it was a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. In other words, it was accepted. The resurrection of Jesus means that the death of Jesus is enough to cover your sins and to welcome you into God's family. And here's the practical outcome of what that means. Here's where the rubber meets the road. Here's what happens on a Tuesday if you're really in the family of God and imitating Him. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness now, that's the day of the Ephesians, and that's ours too. We're soaked in sexual immorality. Sometimes it's visible on the outside. Sometimes it takes place in the quiet of the heart. But sexual immorality, all kinds of impurity and covetousness, in other words, the constant greed and love of possessions, all of those things, Paul says, must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. And there's one of those biblical words that makes people stumble. A saint is not an icon or an image somewhere in a dark cathedral. A saint is someone who has been set apart for God. A person who through the love of Christ has made the father say, this one, this child, this girl, this boy, they belong to me. They're in my family. I'll give them my name. Paul says in this new life of yours, sexual immorality, impurity, and covetousness shouldn't even be on your lips. It's not proper in your new relationship to God. It's not proper among saints. Paul goes on to say this. Let there be no filthiness. In fact, let's read this together. Read this last screen with me. It says, let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. That's the old life. That's what Jesus died for. You shouldn't continually be running and back to and investing yourself in the things that kept you apart from God. That's Paul's point. If your life continues to be characterized by all of these things, by immorality and impurity and the constant greed of possessions, which actually puts God behind money and makes you an idolater. In other words, you choose someone or something ahead of God. All that indicates is that you don't know God at all. Paul says now that you're in God's family and you're his beloved children, turn your back on those things. That's why I say our first duty toward each other is to treat each other with the love and honor of God's own family. Here's what Paul says to pastors. This is a good thing for all believers, but it's explicitly directed to Timothy himself, who at a certain point in his ministry was sort of the pastor at the church of Ephesus. Paul left him there, working there, serving there to build up and to correct things that were going wrong in that local church. If you have ever wondered how a pastor should behave with the members of his congregation, members of his family, here it is. This is for me and my fellow leaders. Whether they're vocational or volunteer, those of you who have been entrusted with spiritual care and leadership of other people, right down to the small group or the one-on-one -on -one discipling relationship, this is what it looks like. 
do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. You see how practical that is? If a young pastor gets sideways, if there's controversy and difficulty with an older man in the church, you tell me, how should that young pastor address that older believer? As if he were his dad. With respect, in other words. Not with harsh authoritarianism. With respect. The younger men in the church, he should view as his brothers. And brothers don't always agree, and brothers sometimes argue, but there should be, in a healthy relationship, love and respect there. The older women he should speak to as if they were his own mother, and there's what keeps pastors walking the path as they should, following Jesus. The younger women he should address as his own sisters, just so Paul, we don't miss the point, Paul adds, in all purity. You see, to me, the most heartbreaking thing in this whole movement, I know what to expect of people who don't claim to know God, who have no respect for God. Harvey Weinstein never claimed any, as far as I know, never claimed any kind of spiritual authority over anyone. Just corporate authority, the authority of talent, the authority of power and money. But the saddest thing, I tell you, that came out of the Me Too movement is that another hashtag was added. As survivors were emboldened and began to speak and tell their story, another hashtag was added, which was this, not only me too, but church too. And people spoke of men in particular, sometimes women, but rarely, usually men who were placed over them in positions of spiritual authority and used the trust of a counseling or a pastoral relationship not to treat those young women as sisters, but to treat them as objects, to gratify themselves and their own selfish desires because of the authority and the confidentiality that that relationship initially afforded them. I know for too many people, there are too many people who should be in church, who still love Jesus, who can't bear to come to church because once upon a time, some man who called himself a pastor and who was given that trust abused his position, abused his power and used it for evil. If any of these stories make sense to you and resonate with your own, I'm really, really sorry. And I'm particularly sorry if any of that was done in the name of Christ. And I'm especially horrified that other men who did not commit the act sat in the cold light of day and made this kind of decision. We can't afford to ruin his reputation. He's too talented. He's too good. He's too good behind the mic or the pulpit. The or reputation of this organization is too important. We will send this person away. We will discredit her story. We will say that she had it coming. We will say that she wanted it. Nonsense. Evil. Wrong. Because the pastor, by position, by the trust that was vested in him, should be viewing everyone under his care as either his parent or his sibling with all purity. God giving us grace, this is the kind of pastors we want to be. 
We'll need his grace every moment. There's nothing in me or any other man or woman on earth who through their own will, through their own moral self-reliance and through their own resolve can ever care for you, love you, and guide you in that way. But with Christ, all of these things are possible. And they're not only possible, they're expected. They're literally in the job description. So what do we do? First, we stand beside victims and we don't torment them further with disbelieving questions. Rachel Denhollander, who you'll hear from in just a few minutes, said that one of the hardest things about being a victim is, first, you're tormented by your own questions. Did I do anything to deserve this? Could I have deflected this? Could I have run away? Could I have defended myself? Why did this happen? What have I done wrong? And then, she says, the people in positions of authority around you and over you ask you those same questions and confirm your darkest fears. But somehow, this shame, this guilt is your own. And I can't imagine anything worse than making the shame and the guilt of someone else's sin and someone else's crime, accepting that with open arms as your own responsibility. It shouldn't happen. So we will stand first by victims as God giving us grace. We will work together, hold each other accountable, and lovingly encourage one another to always behave as the family that God intended. And finally, we're going to promote justice. As we promote justice, we're also going to love kindness and mercy and faithful love. In other words, we will try to embody how God views the world. He can act with perfect, holy, terrifying justice, and he can also be as tender as a nursing mother, as welcoming as a strong father who welcomes his frightened children into his arms to restore them and protect them. And all along the way, we will walk humbly with our God. That's what Micah 6.8 says should be true of God's people. This is before Jesus even appears on the scene. This is what God has always been trying to awaken and create in the lives of the people who follow him. Micah 6 verse 8 says, in beautiful poetic language. What, do you know what God wants? Here it is. Read it with me. Micah 6, 8 says, He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? What is it that God wants? He wants you to do justice. Another translation says to promote justice in your relationships with other people to not abuse power, to not use the power differential that flows both ways, more often men victimizing women, but wherever there is a power differential, people, men and women, will often use that power difference to their advantage, knowing that she needs the job, knowing that she's one paycheck away from losing her home, knowing that she's one bad report and one bad rumor in the industry to spread from really being in danger of being out on the street. It's the power that draws forth the worst that people are capable of. What do God's people do in that situation? They do justice. At the same time, they love kindness, mercy, faithful love that can be translated. 
as God's people seek to act justly as God would in their place, they also love the idea of mercy and faithfulness and forgiveness and restoration. And the only way anyone could ever do that is if they themselves, if we cross point, walk humbly every day with our God. One step at a time, we walk in reliance upon Him because if we don't rely on God, if we don't walk with Him, we'll never be able to do justice. We will forget kindness and mercy. We will forget how God can turn a life around and turn anyone and the worst among his creation and turn them into his beloved children. In all of this story, no one has impressed me more and no one I think has made a greater difference in the United States than a young mother named Rachel Den Hollander. Rachel was not an entertainer. She was a gymnast. And as a 15-year-old girl, she was given what she knew was a great privilege. She was to be given medical care by Dr. Larry Nasser. He was affiliated with Michigan State University, and he was the revered doctor of USA Gymnastics. She has said now in her 30s, the mother of children herself, that she never could have imagined and was initially so confused because what Nasser was doing for a generation of gymnasts is abusing them under the guise of giving them medical treatment. This began when she was 15 and went on until she was about 16. But little girls sometimes grow up to be very strong women. And realizing what had been done to her, she got herself through college and she went to law school specifically with the task of attaining a law degree and expertise in this area, knowing that someday the time would be right for a single voice to be believed in the face of such known and abusive power. And the Indianapolis Star wrote a story about the abuse and the culture of abuse that festered inside USA Gymnastics. When she saw that story, this grown woman, now the mother of several children herself, said, perhaps now I will be believed. And she reached out to the brave journalist at the Indy Star and said, I have a story to tell you. Because she raised her voice. Hundreds of other young women did as well. And Larry Nasser has been sentenced to so many years for so many crimes that he'll spend the rest of his life in prison. His crimes went on for so long and affected so many different people that his victims were afforded an entire week to make victim impact statements. That's how long it took. That's how long the line was. And nobody, in my experience, in listening to testimonies from the time I was a kid about what God can do and how he can shape and remake and put his heart and mind inside another person, nobody portrays it better, what it means to promote justice and at the same time to love kindness and to walk humbly with her God than Rachel Den Hollander. It is so much so that I'd like you to hear a few minutes of her victim impact statement. Thank you. The cost, emotional and physical, to see this through has been greater than many will ever know. And Larry, I don't need to tell you what the cost of your abuse has been to me because you got to read my journals, every word of them because those had to go into evidence to make this happen. But I want you to understand why I made this choice, knowing full well what it was going to cost to get here, and with very little hope of ever succeeding. I did it because it was right. No matter the cost, 
it was right. And the farthest I can run from what you have become is to daily choose what is right instead of what I want. You have become a man ruled by selfish and perverted desires. A man defined by his daily choices over and over again to feed that selfishness and perversion. You chose to pursue your wickedness no matter what it cost others. And the opposite of what you have done is for me to choose to love sacrificially no matter what it costs me. In our early hearings, you brought your Bible into the courtroom and you have spoken of praying for forgiveness. And so it is on that basis that I appeal to you. If you have read the Bible you carry, you know that the definition of sacrificial love portrayed is of God himself loving so sacrificially that he gave up everything to pay a penalty for the sin he did not commit. By his grace, I too choose to love this way. You spoke of praying for forgiveness, but Larry, if you have read the Bible you carry, you know forgiveness does not come from doing good things, as if good deeds can erase what you have done. It comes from repentance, which requires facing and acknowledging the truth about what you have done in all of its utter depravity and horror, without mitigation, without excuse, without acting as if good deeds can erase what you have seen in this courtroom today. The Bible you carry says it is better for a millstone to be thrown around your neck and you thrown into a lake than for you to make even one child stumble. And you have damaged hundreds. The Bible you speak carries a final judgment where all of God's wrath and its eternal terror is poured out on men like you. Should you ever reach the point of truly facing what you have done, the guilt will be crushing. And that is what makes the gospel of Christ so sweet. Because it extends grace and hope and mercy where none should be found. And it will be there for you. I pray you experience the soul-crushing weight of guilt so that you may someday experience true repentance and true forgiveness from God, which you need far more than forgiveness from me, though I extend that to you as well. Yeah, I think it's okay to applaud. That's what it means. That's not just a grown woman, that's a godly woman who sees evil for what it is, doesn't minimize it, talks humbly and openly about what it cost, and even then to the very person who put her through such torture, says, even then, my prayer for you is that you'll be crushed by the guilt of what you've done so that you can have repentance and the forgiveness of God, which I already give you myself. What is that? That's doing justice. That's loving kindness. That's walking humbly with God. Everyone on earth and everyone who comes to this church is in this story somewhere. Far too many of you are having a hard day today because this triggers too many memories. Sometimes from the safest place you should have been afforded from your home other times from neighbors, from bosses, from people you thought were your friends. I'm terribly sorry. 
The good news I have for you is that your God is a restoring, healing God. He takes people that have been broken through the evil of others and he puts them back together and he calls them not only repaired, he calls them new. It's not reformation, it's resurrection. It gives you a whole new status in the family of God so that you will be his beloved child. There are others here and there was another smaller movement that wasn't much talked about where men in particular reflected on the evil of their ways and resolved to do better and to be better, that is possible through the grace of Jesus Christ. So if this is hard for you because you remember a previous life where you treated other people like objects, and now through the goodness and the holiness and the grace of God, you see the error of your ways, the good news, the ground really is level at the cross of Jesus, and he welcomes those who are broken and also those who in their sin do the breaking. He welcomes them all to be forgiven, restored, remade. Particularly if you're a victim, if what is so rightly being called a survivor. I've heard half a dozen stories from last night to today. You should know God has worked wonderfully in this church and provided us godly women who have walked that path themselves with God and now stand ready to help you. Man or woman, there is someone trustworthy that you can come to, you can share your story with, and if now is your time, no one's going to put you on the spot, no one's going to question you, it's your story and your time to tell it. But if you've suffered because of the evil that has been done, not only is there a God in heaven who loves you, there's a family here as well. And we will do our best, God giving us grace, we will do our best always for this to be a safe place. For you to experience from God and through the influence and the friendship and the genuine brotherhood and sisterhood of others what it really means to be loved on earth. Not to be taken advantage of, not to be discarded, not to be degraded, but to be loved because we have a good message to tell ourselves, to remind ourselves of, and to tell the world, yes, too many people have to say me too, but because of Jesus we can always say not only me too, but also, but God. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your goodness and your mercy, and I thank you for both men and women who have approached me this weekend, face-to-face -face or through emails, and shared their own sad story, some asking for help, others speaking of how you healed them and restored them, so much so that no one would ever know that that darkness and their evil is in their past because you have done such a beautiful job of making them a new person in Christ. Thank you for that. Bless Rachel and her husband Jacob. Bless the many survivors and those, Lord, who through the evil of people have been made to question whether you exist and whether you care at all. Lord, I pray that you would do a great work of healing. I don't know if there will be a trickle or a flood of people who you will move in their hearts to seek help, but I pray, God, that whatever that is, we would be up for it, we would walk with you, and that we would truly stand with victims. We would care for them as you do. We would treat each other with great love and dignity so that this truly would be the safest place on earth for everyone, including and beginning, Lord, for our children. And that every day of our lives, as we walk with you, we would do justice and love kindness. 
We give you this offering, Lord, with gratitude. In Jesus' name, amen.